We all got 2020'd. But I'm not playing the victim card, and I don't want you to either. We're going to finish the year with some practical, actionable episodes to help you get momentum that will take you into a new life now. Don't wait until January. Now is the time to get in the fight. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. let life happen to them. The aggressive, they take ownership of their lives, even when it's difficult and the path ahead is unclear. This fact is written all over Darren Mulligan's story from his birth and life in Ireland. Ireland, Mulligan, to the choice to come to America, chasing a dream of making it in music. His band, We Are Messengers, had a huge year in 2019, Back when people could have huge years in 2019, they performed to over a half a million people in 40 states and five countries. Internationally, their music has been streamed over 100 million times and counting. His music has been critically acclaimed, nominated for awards, and featured in film and television, including The Shack and MTV's Coupled. Uh, We Are Messengers might look like an overnight success, but... Anything that's successful, the passive people delude themselves into thinking it is an overnight success, but no, it is not. It's aggressively doing the right thing day in, day out, making intentional choices as this band has done. Darren's story, I think we're going to find, is is gripping. He's known for making aggressive moves. He's known for his raw honesty, his refusal to stand on a pedestal. He's a man who chooses authenticity, and he takes ownership of, of his life. Just an example before we start talking with Darren. After he had an incredibly successful first album, he was struck by the thought of all the people he'd hurt and wronged throughout his life. I'm I'm sure none of our listeners have hurt or wronged anybody. I, I know only perfect people listen to The Aggressive Life. You know what he did? He made a list of 30 people and then he worked through it phone call by phone call, apologizing to those who he had wronged. Hey, man, rock stars aren't supposed to do that. No, rock stars are supposed to just roll and keep drinking the Jack Daniels. But he's not your your typical rock star. He's an aggressive man. I can't wait for you to meet him. I can't wait to get to know more about him. He's got an amazing accent to boot from Ireland. Welcome to the aggressive life, Darren Mulligan. That's quite the setup. I'll take it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, man... It is uh, it is amazing having you uh, with us. I, I would just tell you, I just want you to talk as often as possible because the Irish accent is one of the sexiest accents going. <laughs> My wife might disagree with you. She's Scottish, but I think she's got used to it at this point, you know? No. You know, <laughs> you know, you know what you got to say for us? You got to say uh, Kellogg's Lucky Charms. They're magically delicious. Not a chance in Hades you getting me to say that on this <laughs> Come show. on. Come on. Do you, are, do you know? I don't even know. You might be too young to even remember that old commercial. Do you remember that old commercial? Kale looks like key charms. Magically delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen it. I have seen it. Trust me. And I have heard that so many times in America. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> Not today, Satan. <laughs> Not today, Satan. I know. I am. Um, I'm not the most original guy. I go for the cheap thrill all the time. If it's cheap and I can ha- have fun with it, I do. So anyway, enough of that. Hey, man, you got your you got your first guitar at age 13. Tell us the story about that. Yeah, well, I grew up in uh, on the border with Northern Ireland uh, in the Republic of Ireland. Grew up to a, in a Catholic family. 
just uh you know i i guess now that i'm older i realize we lived in in a form of poverty um wasn't a form of emotional poverty with all the love and support and encouragement anyone could have, you know. But we didn't have things, couldn't afford things, couldn't do things because of money. I remember my dad, when he was younger, he had this beautiful Gibson Sunburst guitar. And I've seen a photo of him with it out in the, the hills of Northern Ireland, sitting looking like a young Elvis Presley. And uh, I've seen that photo. And I asked him one time, I said, Dad, what happened to the guitar? And he said, well, he said, son, when you were one, he said, we couldn't afford to buy food, so I sold that guitar. And so when I was 13 years old, I loved music. I'd fallen in love with Johnny Cash and Eddie Cochran and Willie Nelson. And uh, on my 13th uh, Christmas, uh, my mom and dad just got me this guitar. And I, I didn't realize the importance of it at that time. But they gave to me what they already gave away. Whenever they had the opportunity to buy something again, they didn't buy it for themselves. They bought it for their son. You see, my mom and dad worked factory jobs, cooking jobs, restaurant jobs, 12 hours a day, you know, six days a week. And anytime they had anything to give, they gave it to us. They gave it for us. And so they taught me the value of hard work. They taught me the value of um, being reckless with your own life in that the most important thing in my life is not me. The most important thing in my life is what I do with it. And so I'm called to give that away. And my daddy and buying that guitar changed my world, changed my, my kid's world. He's changed the generation because, ah, I don't want to start. It's hard to talk about it. He has changed the generation of Mulligans because he was kind enough to buy me a guitar. And you know something strange? My daddy's never once told me in my life he loves me. Mm. Not once, but I've seen it a thousand ways. Mm. I've seen it a thousand times. Very blue collar, very yeah. stoic man, but mm. laughs like you've never heard anyone laugh. Uh, emotions don't come easy, but I tell you, doing the right thing came very easy to my dad. Has your dad ever told you that he's proud of you? No, never no. told me in those in those words. But again, it's what he does that demonstrates that. So, for example, back in Ireland in the summer. I was buying a, a just like a secondhand car to leave over there for when we go back. And, you know, there's this farmer in the front seat uh, driving us to the to the butcher shop to change my euros into pounds because he thought our check was dud. <laughs> and, uh, and so this farmer's there, my dad's in the back. And the entire journey, my dad was telling this farmer who I was and what I had done. And he said, and do you know that my son Darren has played at the Grand Ole Opry and he's played with Vince Gill and Vince Gill's on his music and... And he just kept telling him all these things about me. And so I couldn't care less if he never says the words because it's, I just know what I've seen it with my whole life. There's nothing I lack in that. Yeah. Now, do I do that with my kids? No, yeah. I, I have a different approach, but it's a beautiful thing. Well, know? I think your dad has said it with his words though, because he was saying it in your presence to somebody else. I don't, I don't know many yeah. guys who are really longing for their dad to tell them, I love you. I, I don't, I don't think guys <laughs> long for that. I think what guys long for is their dad to tell us they respect us. Uh, um, and that's basically what your dad was doing. Cause you know, as guys, I don't know if you're like me, but most guys, we don't understand love. That's a, uh, women do. There's actually a verse in the Bible, not to get all Bibly on us here for a moment, but there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that says that 
uh, women should love their husbands, or husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands. Because <laughs> yeah. the woman can receive love, so I should give her love. And the men, we, re- we receive respect. You know, what, what do we hear athletes saying all the time to fire themselves up for a game? No, they're not giving us any respect. They're not giving us any respect. So basically what I think what you're saying is, you know you have your dad's respect. That's a powerful thing. Yeah, and, and he knows he is mine. You know, again, we grew up blue collar, very rough and tumble. You know, we're, we're, we're a short family, only like five, seven, five, eight. And so we had to learn to be pretty rowdy very early on. You know, we take no crap from anybody. Um, and I guess how we communicated love and respect um, was through, through obedience and through discipline and through giving of our time. Like, I remember working with my dad. Sorry, I never really talk about this. My dad, I don't know why I'm talking so much about my dad. Listen, he's getting older. My mom's getting older, you know. And the days are short. The time to honor them uh, is is short, you know. But I remember working with him. We did hard physical labor. We were out in a farm one day, you know, working with poultry and animals. And uh, this is about 15 years ago. And he stopped. And I'd never seen my dad stop working before me. He went outside this shed and he, he lay up against the wall. And I went out and said, are you okay? And he said, no. He says, you know, I'm just a bit tired or whatever. And I'd never heard him say he was tired, ever. And so he went back, started working again. I went in with him and he left again. And I went outside and he was holding his chest, just couldn't let go of his chest. And I said, dad, are you okay? And he started cussing about, you know, I'm, you know, F this and F that, I'm all right, you know. <laughs> and uh, I said, here, dad, we're going to go to the doctor. So we drove to the doctor, which was 30 minutes away. And the doctor said, my dad's name's Frank. And he said, Frank, uh, I don't want to alarm you, but you're having a massive heart attack. Uh (laughs) And I got in the car with my dad and we drove to the hospital because we didn't have time for an ambulance. And uh, I remember saying to him, (laughs) I remember saying to him, I said, Dad, uh, and I was sweating. I said, Dad, uh, you know, I love you. And I was waiting for this to be the moment he said it back. <laughs> and he started cussing and he said, what good am I? I can't drink pints anymore. I can't eat fries. I'm no good to anybody anymore. Got to the hospital. All the kids are outside and they give him a clot busting drug. And when they were giving daddy that drug, he was screaming every one of our names, you know? And I, my dad, when I think about it, his daddy died when he was three or four years old. So he never had a father that really demonstrated, I guess, how to communicate. But he's done such a good job. And if there's one man in my life I want to be like, it's me, dad. He's quiet. He doesn't want the limelight. He finds a party, he gets to the corner. He hangs there. He's confident in who he is. He doesn't need the whole world. He has his wife. He's never left her side in 45 years. There's something really beautiful about a simple hard-working man who grew up on the hillside in a bog who loved his kids so well right. that he do crazy things. Yeah, my, my kids care less about how many people listen to a podcast, how many people go to the church I started, how many people read, how many, how many followers do I have. and they, they care less about that. All they care about is that they've got a stable backstop in their life, a stable influence. And you know, no matter what the numbers are in your career or my career, the truth of the matter is none of our numbers are going to matter in a few years or a few decades anyway. It's the, it's the depth, it's the depth and quality of relationships, right, Darren? 
that's, that's true. That's true. And people will never remember um, what you said. They'll always remember how you made them feel. And I think one of my goals is to make my kids and my wife feel safe. I'm not the most tender man in the world, but I, I love the underdog. I respect the underdog. I love those who don't have a voice. I want to speak for them and my kids. I want them, when they tell me what do they think about daddy, um, one of the things they'll often say is that I feel safe when daddy's home. You know, it's really important to me that I keep my family safe, that I protect them and that I protect the people that no one else cares about. Prostitutes and beggars. Yeah. Ladies into abortion clinics, been bullied in by boyfriends and husbands, fathers, my family stand on the sidewalk with them every week and love them and pray for them and help provide counseling and employment and training and healthcare. It's got to be, that's what my dad taught me. Loving people is a hell of a lot more than words. Loving people is what you do with your life from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. You got to be about it. And if you're not being about it, you're just missing it. Well, let's talk about what you're doing with your, your, your life, Darren. This is, uh, I never know exactly what we're going to get into when I have a guest here. And so this is, this is great and invigorating, but let's, let's do talk about what you do with your day job. If you don't mind a bit, you, you, you had yeah. that guitar that your, your parents generously and faithfully got to you. And then what, it was just a matter of doing GCD chords, chords until your fingers bled and you went the next level or what, what was your progression? Exactly. it. I went outside, sat in a, a garage. It was always wet. It was damp. And I played probably six, seven hours a day, every day. And then I started writing little songs in my head. I never sang because I didn't think I had a voice worth singing. Um, and I guess I got into a little band, played in little bands. And I guess we moved to America in 2003 to play in like a screamo hardcore band. You know, thought we were going to take over the world. Uh, it was me and a couple of my brothers and a couple of friends. And... Uh, that was a real learning curve. My life fell apart at that time. Um, and I gave up music. This is, I'm just going to pass over this, but it's true. I fell in love with Jesus. Yeah, you were, you were an atheist. Again. You were an atheist at one point. What, what happened for you to atheist to, to that spiritual transition? Mate, I guess, I think I was as dead as a man could be. You know, I was just, there's nothing, you know, inappropriate sexual behavior and violence. I talk and I talk and I talk from everyone in that period in my life. But I had this girlfriend who I had met when I was 19. When I was gone in America, um, she had been wrestling with anorexia and depression and, you know, a whole bunch of, bunch of issues. And she fell in love with Jesus. Um, and so she told me about him when I came home to Ireland. And I, I didn't believe it. I thought it was all nonsense. Like some geezer in the sky that you can't see that he loves you. Some father who would give his son to die on a cross because he loves you. It all sounded like fairy tales to me, you know? Um, and one night I sat in this little church in Ireland and there was a pastor preaching. And he wasn't like pastors tend to be in Western culture where they're all tickling your ears and telling you that, you know, there's this wonderful purpose-driven life for you, you know? He was saying, listen, you're dead in your sin. And unless you get right with a holy God, you will spend eternity in hell. And I remember him saying that and I was deeply offended. I'm like, who is this guy to tell me? Because I'm a good man. But think about the kind of good man I thought I was. 
the kind of good man that would sleep with strange women in strange cars in America while a faithful girlfriend remained at home. The kind of man who would blaspheme God's name, who would have fights on trains out in Brooklyn, who would drink himself to sleep and wake up with dog shampoo in his hair. What kind of good man was I? But we fool ourselves into believing we are good people because society tells us that. And in that moment, I remember thinking this God is a holy God. And this Irishman is a very, very, very dead Irishman. So very quickly, I came to faith in God that night through fear. And it was a year later after I got married that the first time God ever spoke to me, you know what he said? He what? said, go and tell your wife everything you've ever done. And so I remember going home to my wife and I told her about all of these affairs and all of these things. And I waited for the rejection. And I'm not sure where that came into my life. I'm not sure I thought I was going to be rejected, but I waited for it. And she just put her arms around me. She said, I forgive you. I love you. And in that moment, I fell in love with God because I'd heard about his love. People had talked about it. They talked about forgiveness. But until the hands of a good-looking, blonde Scottish lassie were wrapped around my shoulders and she kissed me, I had never known it was true. I love when you talk about our lives being an aggressive life. And sometimes we, we, we think that that word is such a negative thing. And it's just not. I think about her. She's gentle and tender, the opposite of me. But let me tell you how aggressive she was. When I came home from America and asked her to marry me before I came to faith, her church who had walked with her, they said, you got to choose him or choose us. If you choose him, the church cannot remain with you. And you know what she said? She chose me, bro. She chose me when I was a piece of dirt, mm. when I had no prospects, no employment, no education. Um, when I was a dirty wretch of a man, mm. she chose me. Mm. That's aggression. Yes. She wasn't afraid of risking being hurt. She was all in. And she's responsible for this transformation in my life. You've been married for how long now? Oh, bro. Uh, 2008, so 12, 12 years. Yeah. 12 years. And you guys have, you guys have had quite a bunch of big moves you've done together. Aggressive moves. You moved from Ireland to Nashville. Are you in, are you in Nashville right now? Yeah. Just outside Nashville. We, we town called Spring Hill. So, so yeah. what's it been like going from the land of Ireland to the land of um, country yuppies? Uh, it's, it's really weird for me. It's really, really strange. Um, I would say that American people are the most kind people I've ever met in my life. Very really? generous. Really? Honestly, fen like phenomenal. I remember that winter we moved and it was freezing, snowing the whole lot. And I remember just these neighbors coming around to our one bedroom apartment, bringing coats and, you know, warm boots for our kids. And we met some random guy in a store who brought us tables and our table and chairs. And see, people don't realize about musicians. You know, it's like you said, when you see someone being successful, you think it happened overnight. I got to go back to go forward. So when I started playing music again in 2008, we used to go around little like halls and community centers all across Northern Ireland to tell people that there was good news. There was something more than just grinding through the day. Anyway, long story short, my wife came to me one day. I was managing homes for kids with intellectual disabilities. I loved my job. I got to see kids' lives change. Um, 
these kids were very violent, very aggressive. And my job was what I do at home. In a way, I made them feel secure. She came. My wife said, God told me you have to leave your job. I said, well, he could have done with telling me because he didn't. Six months later, God told me. We had a home, lived near a family. Everything was beautiful. I went, quit my job. And for a year, we set up food banks, went into schools, talked about our faith and life, played some music. And one day, we didn't hear this, one day, and uh, I think it was like May 28th or something, 2014, I was praying. And I said, God, can I go back to work? And this prayer, this is the one that changed everything. And remember, when I was 13 years old, got that guitar. Since I was seven, I'd always wanted to write music. It was the only thing that made me feel alive. And I prayed outside my kid's school in 2014. I said, God, I don't need music anymore. And the next day, Warner Brothers called, said they'd heard something online, offered us a record deal within seven days. They offered us a little extra money from my wife to come out and see Nashville to make sure we'd want to do it, you know, like 10 grand or something. And my wife, do you know what she said? She said, did God tell us to go? Mm. I said, yeah. Then she said, we're going to go. They can give me all the money in the world. It doesn't matter. Let's go. And when we got well, I hope there, you still um, took the 10,000. I hope you st still took the 10 grand. I hope you should still taking that, I hope. Absolutely took the 10 grand. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because I needed it. Within, within eight months, we were stone cold broke. Um, we had nothing. We were living off food stamps, going down to the city hall. But every day of the week, I would go to work. I would get up in the morning. You see, I have that work ethic. I get up in the morning, I'd go right. For our first album, I wrote 130 songs, full demos, fully finished out. Um, and eight months later, we released our, our first single. And it was the fastest growing radio single that our record label had had in 10 years. And everything turned. But I didn't get to where I am overnight. I had fingers that were blistered. I worked myself to the bone to get to where we are. And yes, God put us here. I'm not stupid. I know that. But I worked and I worked. Well, it's, it's a good reminder to all of us here in the aggressive life. You know, the, the truth is, if you're going to be a faith person and you're going to value some of the stuff that's in the Bible, which I, you were finally talking about music, Darren, finally talking about music. You, you keep talking about God, keep talking about Jesus. <laughs> well, I don't care about God and Jesus and the aggressive life. We're talking about music. No, of course I do. But, you know, it's, it's awesome to see your heart there. But, you know, now if I can tap into that for a moment, you know, in the scriptures, there is, the, there, there is truth in the tension. People say, well, there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. Uh, not really. I've read it more times than you. I like you t uh, which ones you're talking about, you know. Um, what there yeah. is is there's tension. So God is one and God is a trinity. Well, which one is he? Well, there's tension there. Uh, yes, you know. Uh, uh, another one is God's in control of my life called the sovereignty of God and I have to steward my life or I have to be in control of my life. So wait a minute. Is it God's in control or I'm in control? Uh, yes, yes. That's basically what you're saying here is that God's in control of my life. He's telling me what to do. And, and you have to get up every freaking day and you've got to work those chords and write those songs until your fingers bleed. You, and and, and, and yeah. you can't get ahead. You can't bless your family. You can't make a mark on the world through music unless you are taking control of your life and aggressively writing songs and throwing crap up against the wall. Some of it is probably crappy. You said 120 songs. If there's 120 songs you wrote, how many of those are going to be hits? Well, out of those 120 songs, four songs were hits. Okay, man. Well, that's, I thought it was going to be less than that. That's awesome. Four, but still, you know, the point is we got to keep moving and pushing 
and have a lot yeah. of failures until we see something that actually takes root. That, that's a great reminder for us, Darren. That's true, bro. You got it. See, the people that truly succeed are the people that never quit. There is the very rare thing like a, an elite athlete, like a LeBron James, where you can say, well, you know, he's set up genetically and physically and, and mentally to do that. But how many times did LeBron James as a kid, you know, practice in his driveway or his court, you know, or his courtyard or whatever? It's not a fluke that people succeed. People because they are relentless in pursuit of the desire that God has given them. Yes. And I'm relentless in writing things that tell broken people there's hope. I'm relentless because I am a mess and I know how much mercy I've received. And I will not stop until I have fulfilled the thing the Lord has asked me to do. And that thing cost us. Oh my goodness. It has cost us. It has cost my babies sitting on their granny and granddad's knees. It has cost them the fresh air in the hills in Ireland where we live. It has cost them a life that was simple and honest and decent for a life where it appears everyone wants to become something. It's cost them the ability to live a life where living was the goal and not taking over the world. And so we're going to have to count that cost sometime. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of times in the years where my kids say, Daddy, why were you gone so much? And all I can say to them as kids, I was gone so much because God asked me to do a job and because I wanted to take care of you guys, you know? Yeah, 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 that's strong. Well, I think we've got to see our lives that way. God asking us to do a job. I mean, you're not, you're not writing, you know, from what I understand is kind of classic Christian contemporary music, right? I mean, you're, you, you know, you're, you're a believer who is in the music industry, but it's not like, it's not like God's leading you to write new Bible verses set to the tunes of Kellogg's Lucky Charms or Magically Delicious, you know. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to say that. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm going to be aggressively keep lobbing you with that opportunity. You'll be waiting for hell to freeze over before I... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, man. Okay, hey. Let's let's talk about your music for a moment. Um, let's do a little uh, behind the scenes, behind the scenes in the music. I'll give you one of your lyrics, and maybe you tell us a little bit about what that lyric meant to you or what you were saying there. Is that cool? Yeah, let's go. All right, here we go. I'll be honest with my humanity. No, I'm not perfect, and I don't pretend to be. <laughs> That's good. We are. Uh... We, we live well, in a culture. it's good because you wrote America. it. That's why it's good. You wrote it. It's funny when people read lyrics back. I, I, I don't even, sometimes you don't think about what you've actually written and how important it is to me as a, as a man. I think the tendency in American culture is to put on a facade, to pretend you're happy, you know, smile when you're not. Just this fake face. You know, in the parking lot, you might flip someone off and then you walk in, you've got your two hands in the air praising Jesus, hmm. right? Yeah. And I think people, especially young people in our culture right now, smell dishonesty. They smell it a mile away. And I think in order to communicate the gospel, we have to at least be honest with ourselves that this is who I am. So there's not one that's good, not one but God. And if there's not one that's good, Darren Mulligan is certainly not some beacon of goodness. What I am is a messy, broken man who has found the mercy and grace of God to be true. And so we want to write songs that remind anyone that no matter where you're at, 
no matter what you're engaged in, no matter how far you feel or seem from God, that you're exactly the kind of person he wants. Jesus hangs out with tax collectors, thieves, you know, zealots, you know, nationalists. <laughs> Jesus would hang out with Democrats and Republicans and even the Libertarian Party because Jesus doesn't have favorites. He has sons and daughters. He'd hang out with you in a palace, but he's more likely to hang out with you in a bar. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have this idea that church is this sterile, clean, feminine thing. Bro, I want to write songs that remind men that there is room for them in the church. And I, I got sent a song the other day and someone said, would you take this song? And I just, my reply was, no, it sounds too feminine. Hmm. Because the church has become so feminized that men stand in church on a Sunday and they sing all these words and they can't understand them because it's not how men work. Right. Yo, the church is the most dangerous, reckless, life-altering, you know, society-changing vehicle there is. And it's still the hope of the world. So how can I be a part of that if I don't tell the truth? Yeah. Oh, gosh, you're hitting on so many themes. It'd be fun to dig into. But I better not. I want to I keep doing these. I, I want to keep doing these uh, these lyrics. But all right, I'll do it anyway. I'll do it. Yeah, you're, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that uh, the average churchgoer really understands how feminine the average church is. And I'm not talking about having women in leadership. I believe in women in leadership. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about yeah. sort of the the culture that is in within churches that plays to the, the base and the base is women in churches, why very few men come to church any longer. And you're right. The perfect example is just the the standard worship songs are sung. They're just they're just gushy love songs towards God. Just really <laughs> like gushy, you know, really <laughs> I don't like gushy love songs. I I, I just I just don't. I, I think it's really weird that we, our songs are these, and, and specifically, not gushy love songs like, I love you, God. Gushy love songs, God telling us, I love you, I love you. How, how, when's the last time there was a song about, about going to war? Onward Christian soldiers an old one. When's the, when's the last time there was a song about picking up your cross and freaking dying, nailing yourself to the yep. cross? When's the last time there was a, yeah. there was a song about carrying something around until you have splinters jammed in your back. When's, when's the last time there was a song that talked about laying your, laying your life down and dying for a mission? When, when, where are those songs? Those songs aren't there because those songs are in the masculine tongue and we're very, very great in the church, in the feminine tongue. And when guys like you or I start talking on this, it's just weird how much criticism I get. It's like, you don't understand, man. We're in a weird aberration in Christian history, this is not the way it's always been. And this is the reason the American church is so freaking weak right now. Yo, uh, it's such an important topic conversation. And I, I agree with one of the things you said was women in leadership. Um, some of the most fierce, you talk about warriors I've met have been women. And I think that that's so important. But men have forsaken their place in the assembly of believers. Men chickened out of the hard work of being on their knees. Men chickened out of the hard work of standing outside abortion clinics and offering young ladies hope and help and a future. Men have abandoned their role. I have done that way too often. And the reason that those, those songs are sang on a Sunday morning, uh, and my wife loves those songs, but I can't relate to them so much, is because it's what you said at the top of this conversation. It's that language about love. 
You see, I don't need Jesus to tell me he loves me. He's already demonstrated that with wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. He's shown me. I don't need him to tell, tell me that he respects me because he's already shown a brutal, humiliating, naked death on a tree where his heart was crushed under agony. And so you talk about those songs. Uh, David Crowder put out a song last week uh, called Crushing Snakes. And I'm like, I'm in. I'm in on that straight away. We wrote a worship song one time that worked in the church. And we don't do that very often. But it was uh, me and David Crowder. And the, the tagline said, a cross meant to kill is my victory. And you see, I can get behind that. Because, you, you know, you, look, you read through the scriptures and you see these men. You look at Abraham. You know, you look at Isaac, you look at David, you look at Joseph. These men were, were involved in incredible power struggles. These men went into dangerous territory. Joshua, Aaron, these men weren't afraid of giants. They were going into the land. They were taking the land. The demasculization of the American male is a scary, scary thing. If a burglar breaks into my house tonight, am I going to tell him how much he's loved? Dude, I'm going to chokehold him. And I'm going yes. to teach my boys to do that. I'm going to teach them to open doors for ladies, to give up their seats on buses, to always say please and thank you, to honor the police, to honor our first responders, to honor soldiers, because it's a culture of honor. And when you walk into a church on a Sunday morning and there's flowers everywhere and subtle lighting and this beautiful tender music, they wonder why males feel like they don't belong. Honestly, at times that makes me feel like I'm too dirty to even be in the room, you know? So we have a responsibility not to blame the church for doing that, but you and I need to show up and say, lads, listen, can we try and change this culture? Can we alter this so that we again restore order in our houses where men can feel like men? where men can do manly work in the kingdom of God and women can do likewise. Now, in Ireland, I don't know if I just am attracting classic manly man Irish types to me, but it seems like every Irish person I meet has got a similar ethic to what you're talking about right now. Um, is that, yeah. are, are, you, are you standard in Ireland? or It just, it just seems like there's, there's more guys, the people I meet in Ireland just, just have an edge about them and aren't as uh, aren't as civilized. There's just, there's just a softness about the average American male that I've not encountered in the average Irish male I've encountered. Is that true or not? Because I haven't met all that many Irish males. Yeah, I think I think in the general population, I think Irish men um, there's still a fairly traditional home structure. So for the most part, especially in rural Ireland, and you see this in rural America too. Um, the men tend to take the lead in the home. The men tend to be the ultimate decision maker. The men tend to go to work and the wife tends to work less maybe or stay at home and, and watch the babies. And, uh, and it's weird because in America you have this feministic movement that really doesn't understand what feminism actually is and how important it can be. And I told a story one time. This is, again, I'm Irish, so this is the best way of answering your question. My mom and dad worked equal hours because, again, we were relatively poor. Worked just as hard. But mom worked harder. She'd get up in the morning, make lunch. She'd get the dinner on so the dinner would be ready. Anyway, I would come home 
sometimes. And my dad would be sitting on an armchair. We'd have a sofa beside the armchair. The fire would be lit. TV would be on. My dad would be sitting on the, so- on the armchair. And what, a- what modern American feminists would say is that my dad would be mansplaining. So he was sitting with his legs spread apart on the armchair, right? Just like any fella, you know? And uh, do you know where my mom would choose to sit? She wouldn't choose to sit on the, on the big comfy sofa. She would choose to sit on the floor between his legs, right? With her arm resting on his knee. And he would have his hand on the back of her head, stroking her hair, right? And I told this story one time in a church and a woman rose up. And she said, did your mom not realize she was so weak and she was so humiliated? And I said, young lady, you have no idea. Do you not realize that my mother in that humility and submission was in the place of power in my home? She was in the place of honor. They've inverted it. There is nothing humiliating about sitting at the feet of your husband because she knew she was loved above all women. And my dad knew he was respected above all men in our house. And you see this cultural thing that we have in America, it tells men and women sit across from each other in the same size seats or else it's not equality. Yo, I've opened more doors for women in America and them scoffed at me because I would open the door and let them walk through first. But I'm going to keep doing it because there is an order. There is a way. Men are to be men. Women are be women. And the sooner we realize that, the better. Because the world can't keep turning unless, they, unless we work together on that. This podcast is called The Regressive Life for such a discussion as this. Hey, I know that we're setting off some bells inside of folks. Hey, just allow yourself to be pushed a little bit here. Allow yourself to open yourself up to a dialogue and to some perspectives that you're not going to get any place else. Thanks for pushing us today, Darren. Good, good stuff. You know, when you're honest, you tend to get in a lot of trouble. And again, it's because our culture takes things in sound bites. You know, so you can sit and go, oh, darn, he's a sexist. I realize the value of women. I realize that. My family survives because I have a woman who is so strong and so fierce and so secure in her love for God that she allows me to go out into the world 150 days a year and leave our family. I'm not undermining the strength of women. I think women, honestly, a lot of times are much stronger than men in many areas. I'm just saying, let us be stronger in the areas we're stronger in. You be stronger in the areas you are because it takes us both working together. People are saying, yo, our culture is falling apart. We love sin more than we love God. Let's go change it. Let's go take hills. Let's go take the promised land back. But if you say that, people say, oh, well, you're stirring people to anger. No, I'm stirring people up to biblical truth. Ezekiel says, if the enemy's coming and you don't warn the people the enemy's coming, the blood will be on your head. But if you warn them, the anger of God will pass over you. How many men, how many men have let the evil one come to their house, have let the evil one come to the church, have let the evil one come to their own hearts and have stood idly by, you know, and sang him a sweet worship song as he walked on in. Yeah. Do you know? I, I totally. I'm, to I'm, re- I'm reading right now um, Joshua again, the book of Joshua. And, you know, and Joshua is the first book in the Bible that's got a lot of the intense violence, sanctioned violence from God against other people. 
and that, that's a that's a really important theological topic. You know, how can God sanction violence and all that? I, I get that. That that's really important to to get at and wrestle with. It really is. But you know what I say on the other side of that is. I, I never I never read those stories going, huh, is God ever gonna call me to pull up my 44 Magnum or take out my nine take out my nine and pop a cap in your ass? Is he ever gonna is he ever gonna do that? Have me kill somebody? No, I never I never come to that conclusion. I, I never read that stuff and I'm incited to violence. When I read that no. stuff though, I go, I go, oh man, yeah, there is an aggressiveness, there is a warlike mentality I have to have. When I see my marriage slipping through my fingers or when I see finances being tough or I see the thing I lead having problems, I, I've got to man up. And by, by man up, I'm talking about warrior up. I got to see there's a war. And I just find people who have a hard time with the violence passages in the Bible have a hard time warring up. Because I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, your life is a freaking war. If 2020 yeah. has taught you anything, it's shaking us out. It is a freaking war. I'm not saying you're supposed to go to war with a person. I'm not. I'm not talking about the political divisiveness I have. But you've got to see there's something in front of you that needs knocked down. There is, yeah. a, there is an appropriate level of holy violence that we need to embrace. And there again, we could never say that for many of our churches because it just sounds too stereotypical masculine. Not true. It's very you know, biblical. We're not talking about going into the streets and armed rebellion. We're talking about men showing up for their lives taking responsibility, going into the hard places and being actual physical change. I'm going to stand on the side of righteousness. I'm going to admit when I've sinned, I'm going to ask for repentance and I'm going to change. And I expect that from my brothers in the faith. And men need to start calling each other out on their BS. You know, every time a man talks sexually about another woman in the presence of another man, that man needs to say, yo, that's not what we do. We honor women. We respect women. We're called to more. That's going to war. Paying your taxes. Right. Being honorable in your job, that is going to war. And growing up and remember that the world doesn't revolve around us. Like soldiers, we're called to lay our lives down so that other people can live theirs. And I think, I think you've, you've stirred me up. This is your fault. This is your fault because these conversations need to happen. I'm just telling you. Sorry. Quick commercial break. Christmas is almost here to New Year after that. If you're looking for a great gift for the aggressive man in your life or if you're looking to take new ground in 2021 for yourself, why don't you head over to Amazon. Check out my newest devotional called Move. 66 prompts to kick your rear into gear. Get the aggressive back in your life, specifically your quote-unquote spiritual life with Move, the man devotional this holiday season. This is a a deep dive here on a, on a number of levels, but I, I got to get us in the lightning round. I got to finish this out with the lightning round. The lightning round is very simple. I tell you something. I ask you a question. You got to answer it in one or two sentences. Are you up for the lightning round? Can you do it? And we're, I'm actually, there's no Bible verses in my lightning round. I don't know if you can handle this or not. There's no political statements in my lightning round here. There's no <laughs> There's no time for you to get on your, your macho Bible kick that you and I are on right now. So can you can you handle questions that aren't Bible and God and, and orientation? Can you do it? I'm totally okay with that. Let's go. And of course, you're good. You're, I'm sure you're going to bring God into it again. You keep bringing God up. You keep bringing him into the conversation. So if you want to bring him in on these, that's a, that's okay as well. But I don't want to ignore either that, that you are also a very 
successful, effective musician, and uh, people need to hear that. So here we go. Favorite musician band of all time? Uh, uh, Johnny Cash. Probably Johnny Cash. Yeah, the dude was real, honest. Yeah, love him. Musical artist that people would be surprised to know that you listen to? Metallica. They wouldn't be surprised about that because they know me. I would say um, Nora Jones. Ah, all right. Yes, Metallica didn't sound too surprised to me. Nora Jones, that does. All right. Most aggressive move you've made in your career? Leaving my job, leaving my home, leaving our family, um, arriving in America with five suitcases and no beds to sleep on. Um, terrified. Most aggressive move you've made in your family life? Uh, saying sorry to my wife for adultery and affairs, uh, you know, before before we had got married. Yeah. Mm. The secret to creativity. Hard work. The thing that inspires you. Mercy. The band you'd love to tour alongside with. Ooh. Uh, imagine Dragons. Thing you loved most growing up in Ireland. Man, I can't talk about Ireland without crying. Uh, I love the air. The air is clean and it's fresh. I love the drizzle. The rain's soft. There's always a breeze. I love looking out your window and seeing fields and cows. And I love, I love the smell of the earth and the ground. Yeah, I love hiking and walking just through forests. Yeah. The thing that surprised you most about America? People. The people are, are, are bright. They're hopeful. They're kind. They're generous. And they're uh, ambitious. And you know what? Really hardworking. And I know you hear me say that and then in your back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, not anymore. But I think they're there. I'm looking at my neighbor's house across the road. This man gets up before I get up, goes to work home after I come home. Takes care of family. Good, solid, decent, decent man. And there's a lot of those men and women in this neighborhood. So I, I, I feel hopeful for America. I really, really do. Even, even in days like these. Brother, anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Um, yeah, I, I think two things. One, if you sit with me for longer than this hour and a half, you'll know that I'm much more complex than the ideas I've put across. Um, I don't view everything as black and white. Anything that the scriptures say in black and white is black and white to me. Everything else is gray, right? I would say this, that um, it's really important that I mention this. For the longest time, my wife and I and our kids, we said we were pro-life. We said, you know, we believe that every human life was valuable uh, in the womb. And what I realized about three or four months ago, we were only talking about it and not doing anything about it. So I'd encourage the people that are listening to the podcast um, who, who have taken social positions and who have taken these worldview positions and you speak about it and you talk about it over coffee and you jibber jabber and you go for beers and talk about it, but you never do anything about it. There is a great joy. There is a wonderful beauty that comes in stepping into the darkest places in the world. And, you know, when you think about the aggressiveness of moves like that, I got to I gotta just give my wife honor. We, uh, we're on the sidewalk outside Planned Parenthood in Nashville a few weeks ago. There's people 
throwing F-bombs at us and flipping us off and cars, you know, driving incredibly fast to try and scare us, all kinds of things. And there's my wife standing with her hands on a young lady, just telling her what she's worth, the beauty that it, she is and the beauty that's in her. And we partner with this organization and uh, they do incredible work. There's no judgment, no condemnation. There is truth, but there's so much grace and mercy. And it has transformed my lives to see these young women choose life. And it has transformed my lives to realize that if I love with an agenda, that's not Jesus' love. You see, you got to love a young girl as she walks into an abortion clinic. you got to love her in the way out too. And when you take a position where you say you only love a person if they make the choice you want them to make, that isn't love. That's an agenda. Yeah, and right. Jesus, that's Jesus right. isn't about agendas. He's about mercy and grace and love. So men, I would say this, and I'll say this to my kids too. Men, show up for your lives. Show up for your wives. Show up for your family. Show up for your community. Get your crap together. Stop making excuses for your weakness and your apathy. This is for me. I'm saying all this to me. There's a lot of work to be done and the day is almost over. The night will be at hand. And when the night comes, there'll be no more time for working. That's good. Darren, um, people want to follow up with you more or, or get in touch with your stuff or see what you got going on. Just go ahead and give us a plug for all your channels. Yeah, you can just get us like all the socials as we are messengers. If you've got angry hate mail, bring that. I love getting those. I love seeing those. You can send that to uh, wearemessengersmusic.com. So, yeah. There you have it, boys and girls. Darren Mulligan. You can't put him in the in the box of just being an artist. You can't put him in the box of just being a, a an Irishman. No, no. That guy schooled us on what it's like to have convictions. He schooled us on what it's like to go after the things you believe in, not just have your philosophies and beliefs, but actually put your actions behind them. We're all the richer for it. Take what you will, apply what you can from this episode, and that is another one on The Aggressive Life. All right, man, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band Judges for the Music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.